So there's a book on my shelf. The book on the back reads, The life of Colleen Chow was beautiful and brimming with possibility. She was talented, confident, ambitious. She never imagined that she swimmed through two decades of deep water anxiety and depression. She couldn't guess that she'd marry late, suffer years of chronic illness, and give birth to a child with health complications. Her dreams didn't include the words cancer, stage four, terminal. Is it possible to face the darkest days of life with hope and joy and purpose? That's the teaser on the back of the book. And the title on the front tells us why the answer to that question is yes. The title, In the Hands of a Fiercely Tender God. Because God is fiercely tender, because God is not just all-powerful, but meticulously merciful, Colleen says. Suffering on its own would have wrecked me. Dark days can poison the soul and rot the bones. But in the hands of a fiercely tender God, suffering has slowly freed me and opened my eyes to see the eternal realities more clearly and worked in me indestructible joy. With each new pain and sorrow, I have come to love and believe Jesus more. Can you imagine a life like that? A life where suffering didn't make you fixate on a problem, but fueled your love for Jesus. And what about when life wasn't filled with acute sufferings, but everyday stressors, the the challenging circumstances we all face? Can you imagine a life that didn't gripe and grumble when desires were left unmet, but saw God's good sovereign provision in everything? A life free of complaining and sinful anger because it's so content With God's provision. A life where the impulse isn't cynicism. But it's communing with God. A life that truly celebrates when others get what you so desperately want. Can you imagine a life like that? It's the life Colleen Chow had. And it's the life 1 Thessalonians invites us into. In this letter, the Apostle Paul aims to awaken us to eternal realities that we might be so anchored in the beauty of Christ and the wonder of the gospel that no matter what we face on the best days and the worst of days, we rejoice. That the impulse of our soul is to commune with God in prayer, give thanks to him in all circumstances. That's what our text for this morning invites us, commands us, and compels us to. So let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you want to grab the chair Bible in front of you, that's on page 988. I'm going to read for us verses 12 through 28, and we'll focus on 16 through 18. Hear the word of God. We ask you, brothers or brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone for evil, 
but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. And before we zero in on verses 16 through 18, let's, let's remember this context. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica. As soon as he started this church, he's beat up. Him and his buddies are run out of town. And in Paul's absence, there's opponents in the city of Thessalonica trying to discredit Paul and discourage the Christians who are there to keep them from loving and living the way God commands. And the Holy Spirit inspired this letter to encourage the Thessalonians to press on, to press into Christ. And he wrote it to encourage us to press into Christ, to press into each other as we press on toward heaven, as we wait for the return of Christ. That's what Paul just wrote about in chapters 4 and 5. The return of Jesus, that he's returning soon. So have hope and be encouraged and encourage one another. And Paul says we do this, chapter 5, so that we might be children of light, that we might be a bright display of the gospel to a dark world. And as we saw in the last couple of weeks in verses 12 through 15, Paul starts to give specific instructions on what it means to be a light of gospel peace. By loving with one another, pursuing peace. And now we get to verses 16 through 18. Let me give you what I call my clunky sentence that summarizes it, and then I'll give you a shorter one. Here's the clunky version. Don't write this one down. Wait for the next one. But this is the clunky version. Brothers and sisters, as we wait for the return of Jesus, God's will for us is to display the beauty of Jesus by having joyful thanksgiving in all circumstances and praying without ceasing. Simple version. Beloved, let's devote ourselves to praise and prayer in all things as we delight in Christ above all things. That sentence will be our outline and our guide for this morning. So let's look at that first word, beloved. Did you notice that as we read this passage, the repetition of brothers or brothers and sisters? Just look there in your Bible. Verse 12, we ask you, brothers and sisters, Verse 14, we urge you, brothers and sisters. Verse 25, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Verse 26, greet all the brothers and sisters. Verse 28, read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. So five times in these final verses, Paul addresses the church as brothers and sisters. The church isn't a random collection of individuals. It's a, it isn't a club based on similar interest. Paul reminds the Thessalonians and us that we our family. We're brothers and sisters. Why? Because we have the same heavenly father. It's exactly how Paul started this letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the what? Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. For you know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. So Paul wants the church and us to know that we are loved by God, that we are beloved children bought into God's family by the blood of Jesus, filled with the spirit. And you're like, Joey, why do you bring this up? This isn't in our text for this morning. And I say, here's why. Because when you read these final verses, there are more than 15 commands. Three in our verses this morning, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And if we're not careful, we'll separate what Paul says here from what he said in the rest of the letter. See, these commands are not given to the Thessalonians so somehow they can start obeying God and earn his love. And if we're not careful, that's how we'll read it. And as far as I know, that's what every other religion says. Try really hard to obey a list of commands, and if you do... Your salvation, whatever version that is, a better future, heaven, paradise, karma, whatever it is, it'll be good for you. Other religions are marked by list of rules, not a relationship with God. And so for my non-Christian friend, for those of you that are not a Christian, I'm thankful that you're here. And I hope what you see is right out of the gate that Christianity is different. This isn't about what we must do to earn God's favor. It's about what God has done for us. So the Bible teaches us we cannot do enough good thing to earn God's favor. The Bible teaches we all rebel against God. We do what God forbids. We don't do what he commands. But even deeper, we, we have misplaced and disordered love. It's our very affections. We love something or someone more than God. And this is what the Bible calls sin. And sin separates us from God. So I hope you see, sin is not just about rules. It's about relationship. But see, here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus did what we could not, what we did not want to do. He lived the perfect life, and yet he died on the cross. Why? For all our sin, for those who would confess their sin and repent and trust in him for reconciliation back to God. And Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And so no matter what... We have hope. See, our hope is not based on keeping these rules. We have a confident hope because the tomb is empty and the cross is bloody and Christ is risen. And so on our best days and when we fail miserably, God loves us in Christ. See, the Christian faith starts with love. We work from love, not for love. All religions are not the same. If you want to talk more about that, you can come grab me, grab the friend that brought you. But Christians are obeying from love. And we have to remember, as we jump into this passage, these commands, it's from love. God's first word is not behave. God's first word is beloved. Beloved. And as we'll see in a few weeks, not only, verse 23, God not only com, com, commands it, he compels us to obey him. He will sanctify us. I'm not going to steal Nathan's thunder from a few weeks from now. So keep moving. So these commands are not about earning. They're about enjoying our relationship with God as we love one another and we display Christ. That's the context. So beloved, let's devote ourselves. Let's devote ourselves. All these commands are in the plural. Addressed to the whole church together. 
So if we were in the south, we would say what? Y'all. Y'all rejoice always. Now you hear? Right? If you're from Jersey, what would you say? Use guys. Yeah. Use guys praise always. If you have proper English, you would say what? You all. You all give thanks. Right? These commands are not individual assignments. They're a group project. We work on this together. Restoration Church, this right over there, that covenant, that's what we've covenanted to do together. We're not just focused on me, myself, and I. Yes, we obey these commands personally, but we are to be eager. We are to see to it that everyone rejoices always, that everyone prays in all circumstances, that everyone gives thanks constantly. And this reminds us we need to invite others to help us do this. We're all weak and needy, aren't we? Life is hard. We need the support, the counsel, the wisdom, the rebuke of a brother or sister to help us pray, to help us delight in Christ above all things as we sojourn toward heaven together. We devote ourselves to this. And so just think about how this begins to happen in the regular rhythms of the life of our church. Imagine you have the chance to help two members of the church that reconcile. They had a heated argument that turned into gossip and complaining. And you, you point each one of them to Jesus, reminding them the beauty of Christ, reminding them this brother, this sister they're complaining about is one Christ loved so much that he died to save them. And the spirit binds us together. And then weeks later, you come to the prayer gathering and you see that brother, that sister together. And they share evidences of God's grace in each other's life. And you rejoice as they rejoice. On Sundays, you look around this gathering Your voice joins the the mom who had a miscarriage. And you sat with her and you wept and you remind her, Sister, God loves you. God loves you. Your voice joins the parents who hold their newborn son rejoicing together. In community group, you give God praise because a brother is brilliantly happy. His teenage son has confessed faith in Christ, repenting and desiring to be baptized. And you rejoice on Tuesday afternoon, you're tired, you're weak, you're weary. You just want to give up. But you keep that coffee appointment. And that sister reminds you what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And she prays for you. And in that moment, you're reminded, I'm not alone. And a glimmer of hope and thanks begins to swell up in your heart. Dozens and dozens of stories like this. Week after week, we come together broken and bruised. And some of us are content and happy and together. This is the way God has designed the church to be. Our lives knit together in joyful thanksgiving and humble prayer that we might be a beautiful display of Christ to a watching world as we wait for his return. Consider, brothers and sisters, how are you doing spurring others on to rejoice, pray, and give thanks? How are you doing inviting others in? We're to be devoted to this work. Let's devote ourselves. And notice the reason I chose that word devoted is because each command here is in the present tense. So it's it's an ongoing action and Paul adds those words always. So a literal translation of this passage could be this. You all continually rejoice always. You all continually pray constantly. You all continually give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God for you all. Now Paul's writing teacher probably would have taken off points for redundancy. But the Holy Spirit 
wants us to see these aren't just occasional suggestions. These are holy habits that are meant to mark the totality of our lives. As we read this passage, did you notice those all-encompassing words? Verse 14, be patient with who? Who? Some people? Be patient with all. Verse 15, don't repay anyone evil, but always do good to everyone. Rejoice when? When? Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Test everything. Abstain from every form of evil. There are no asterisks. There are no footnotes. There are no exception clauses. We are to be devoted in Christ in all things at all times, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks to God in Christ. If you want to know God's will for you, there it is. I don't know what specific college you should choose to go to. I don't know ultimately which job you should choose to take. I don't know if you should date or who you should marry as long as they're a Christian. I don't know which car you should buy or apartment to rent. I don't know if you should choose private school, charter school, public school, or homeschool. I, have, I don't know. We, could, we should seek wisdom in those decisions. But we have to be careful not to reduce God's will in our lives to the formula to make a decision. God's will tells us right here. It's not specific choices and decisions. It's a devoted soul in all circumstances. God's will for you, beloved, is to be filled with joyful thanksgiving and prayerful dependence in all things you delight in Christ. That may not provide specific answers, but it will orient you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. And you might be thinking, but what about? Someone said it this morning. This is an unrealistic passage. Am I really supposed to rejoice when I receive that diagnosis from the doctor? Am I really supposed to give thanks when I've had an unmet godly desire for years? Should I rejoice when I don't make the school team or get rejected from that school? Those are hard questions. And as gently and as pastorally as I can, I say, yes, these commands apply in the hard and the happy times. But before we get to the but what about, I want us to behold the stunning beauty of this passage. We're so quick to, but what about? Can we stop for a minute and consider the God who commands these things? Think about how gracious our God is. He wants our joy. He wants to always be near to us for our our desires and our life to be filled with soul-anchoring thanksgiving. Think about this command, pray always. God invites us to come to him all the time at any point without reservation to cast all our cares on him so that he might carry us. God never gets tired. And more amazingly, he never gets tired of us. That's the God who's commanding this. What God is like this? Beloved, don't run to, but what about? Run to the God. His character, kind, gracious, compassionate, benevolent, begging you to come to him all the time. He sees, he knows, he cares about you, about us. 
And consider the compelling wonder of what this text is commanding us, inviting us to be. This passage is not a list of rules to keep. It's a beautiful people to be. You have to see that, beloved. A church family so devoted to the Lord and one another, there's no hint of impatience among them. Evil is rare among us, but even when it happens, it's repaid with good. When everything around us tempts us to rebel against God and be angry at all those people, instead we're filled with unexplainable joy. We're people always communing with God, keenly aware of his presence, marked by frequent and fervent prayer. In a world where griping, grumbling, and complaining are as common as the air, we breathe refreshing joy because we have Christ, the darling of heaven, the one who has thrilled the heart of the Father for eternity has been given to us and for us. That's what this is calling us to be. It's what it's inviting us into. A bright gospel light in a dark world displaying the beauty of Jesus, the wonder of the gospel as we wait for his return. So non-Christian friend, we invite you to this. Hang out with us. We're messy and we're messed up. As I like to say, we're not that impressive, but our Christ is. Our Christ is, and it's him we want to show to you, to give to you. And as Paul praises the Thessalonian church, I praise God for you, beloved. In so many ways, you mark this well. You're devoted to one another's good, materially, but even more importantly, spiritually. You care for each other. You spur each other on. And then Paul says in this letter, I urge you to do it more and more. So let's press in a little deeper. What exactly does Paul mean in this passage? Beloved, let's devote ourselves to praise in all things. You'll notice I'm lumping together rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances under that heading of praise. So what does Paul mean when he commands to give us always rejoice, to give thanks always? Does this mean we should always be happy, clappy, you know, blissfully floating through life? That's certainly not what Paul means. Remember the context. The Thessalonian church is being persecuted, suffering afflictions. They're grieving because their loved ones have died. Paul is not calling them to ignore reality. And yet, he's saying rejoice always. So does this mean we can never be sad? What about when life punches us in the gut? Does it mean we can't be angry when we experience and see injustices? No. The same Paul who wrote this also wrote 2 Corinthians 6. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoice. He wrote Romans 12. Abhor what is evil. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Paul has categories, sadness, weeping, and even righteous loathing of injustices that doesn't snuff out joyful thanksgiving. And we think of the Lord Jesus. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Bible. He rejoiced always. He gave thanks in all circumstances. And yet, what did he do at the the tomb of his friend Lazarus? He wept. He rebuked religious leaders for praying on the vulnerable. He grieved over the spiritual darkness of Jerusalem. He shed tears in the garden, pleading with the Father, is there any other way? And yet, Hebrews tells us, 
for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus was able to look through his circumstances as hard as they might be and look to his father and say, I trust him and I trust your promises. That's the joy and thanksgiving Paul is getting at here. Not fleeting emotions. A confident hope in God and his promises. That's the joy. This type of joy and thanksgiving doesn't deny our experiences, but it does direct our focus. This type of joy, this type of thanksgiving only comes when we truly believe that we are beloved. That we really are in the hands of a fiercely tender God. So Nathan quoted Corey Ten Boom this week. So I'll do the same this week. Or last week Nathan quoted her, I'll quote her this week. So for those of you that know the life of Corey Ten Boom, you may know that her family deeply loved Jesus. They were in Germany and their family helped Many Jews escaped the Nazis during the Holocaust in World War II. Her family ended up being arrested. She never saw her father again. She was imprisoned with her sister Betsy in a concentration camp. Her sister died. Corey managed to get out of life, and she, she lived the rest of her life, as Nathan said last week, going around speaking and pointing people to the, pro, the providence and the purposeful sovereignty of the Lord. And often when she spoke she would hold up the underside of a tapestry, which was messy with all kind of threads going all over the place and random knots. But when she turned it over, there was a lovely crown, beautifully woven out of all those messy thread and knots. And then she would comment. It's because of our limited vision, our limited perspective of what God is doing in our lives that we question Him. You see, beloved, We often only see the underside, the messy, all the knotted up threads. But God is the master weaver. And he's weaving something beautiful through his divine sovereignty for all those in Christ. And notice, that's what the passage says. Notice this is God's will for us in Christ. We give thanks in all things. We don't give thanks necessarily for all things. There's a lot in our life that isn't good. Cancer isn't good. Abuse isn't good. Poverty isn't good. Marital strain and brokenness isn't good. Miscarriage isn't good. Being bullied and made fun of isn't good. Feeling alone and isolated isn't good. Being lied about isn't good. Parents and kids not getting along isn't good. The death of the loved one isn't good. War, famine, natural disasters, terrorism isn't good. And yet, in all those things, we can give thanks. Why? Because God is working good together for all who love Him. God's economy is eternal. Returns are not calculated on present experiences. And that's why over and over in this letter, Paul is pulling the saints toward heaven. Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. We're waiting for Jesus from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 3, verse 13. We will stand blameless in holiness before God when Christ returns. Chapter 4, 13 through 18. We grieve with hope because Jesus died and he's returning soon and we'll be together with him and all God's loved ones forever. Chapter 5, 1 through 13. You're children of light. 
It's dark now, but Christ is returning. Hope in your salvation. Paul wants us to know the trials we face and the tears we shed are real. But they're temporary. As I read this week, joy, not suffering, is eternal. Joy is given. Sorrow is lent. It is lent to us just for a little while that we may use it for eternal purposes. As much as sorrow is painful, it is even more profitable. We sufferers who love Jesus live in an eternal economy where brief sorrows are exchanged for infinite joys. That's why Paul can say, joyful thanksgiving in all things. Because we trust the God who is over all things and soon will make all things new. And so we have an unexplainable joy now because what awaits us then? But it gets even better. We don't have to wait for eternity. Our joyful thanksgiving isn't ultimately in heaven. It's in Christ. Again, notice the text. That's the foundation for our rejoicing. Verse 18. This is God's will for us in Christ. That's where rejoicing happens, in Christ. That's where thanksgiving happens, in Christ. Prayer happens, in Christ. Paul says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. See, our joy, all circumstances, isn't based on circumstances, our possessions, our earthly accomplishments, our relationship status. Our joy is bound up in Christ, delighting in Him above all things. See, the rejoicing commanded here is not an empty declaration that nothing is wrong. And the rejoicing here is not a shallow happiness when everything seems right. The rejoicing commanded here is a confident hope in the bad times. Jesus will make everything right. The rejoicing commanded here is a happy, humble confidence that even in the good times... Christ is better still. So we can have joyful thanksgiving in our ever-changing circumstances because we have a never-changing God. And he's given himself to us in Christ. And so here's the beauty. In calling us to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances, God is calling us to himself. Do you see that? He wants us to delight in Christ above all things, that that we might delight in Jesus, behold his beauty, his provision, as we display the gospel. And here's why thankless grumbling and complaining is so offensive to God. When we're thankless, we are not just dissatisfied with our circumstances. We're actually dissatisfied with Christ. Every grumble leads us back to the garden. Did God really say? Does he truly love you? Isn't God holding out on you? Complaining is a protest against God's good providence. A thankless life is soon enough an idolatrous life wanting the gifts more than the giver. Go see Romans 1. To be sure, there's a place for lament, and this side of heaven will 
will wrestle against discontentment. We don't have to fake it until we make it. Right? Our lives don't have to be a, an Instagram feed, curated, edited version of ourselves with nicely placed meals and airbrushed vacations. That's not what Paul's getting at. We should be open and honest with God and with each other. A life that's striving for this type of joyful thanksgiving doesn't complain about God. It goes and complains to God. Help me. God, help me. It laments to God himself. And it invites others to be reminded of his provision to help us. what it does. And beloved, again, I think we do this well on the whole. We help each other go to God in the midst of hardships and unmet godly desires and all these things. So let's keep pressing in all the more. And so let me encourage you to establish rhythms of joyful thanksgiving in your lives. We try to do this as a church. You heard it this morning in our prayers. We give thanks to, to God for things large and small. We sing songs like the one we just sang before this sermon. Come rejoice now, O my soul, reminding us we always have reason to give thanks in Christ. We do this in our prayer gatherings as we invite people to share evidences of grace in each other's lives. I trust this has happened in your community groups and disciple relationships as you help each other delight in Christ, both through those valleys and as you celebrate the victories. In our family, one of the ways that we seek to do this is at dinner every night. Many of you have been around, but after we, we pray for our food, thanking God for his provision, everybody at the table, family or guest, has to share one thing they're thankful for from that day. And the reason I do that is not because I'm so spiritually strong. It's because I'm so weak. I'm so weak. I have to, I have to set up rhythms to, to, to force me in a way to be thankful. See, I can so easily give in to grumbling and complaining. Here's how messed up one of your pastors is. There have been times when I've opened the refrigerator and I've gotten upset because I had to move the apples and move the orange juice and move the cheese to get to the hummus that I wanted in the back. And then when I got to the hummus, I brought it out and I was grumbling because I had a little bit of frostbite on it because it was, the refrigerator was so cold. How dare I have to take 13 extra seconds to get to the food that I want in the back, and the refrigerator is so cold, now it's got a little bit of frost. How dare I? How dare God do that? Have any of you ever stood in front of a cabinet open full of food and said, we don't have anything to eat? It seems small and petty. But with a little of I just... Meditate on this passage for a week. And you'll soon begin to see how much you grumble and complain and neglect to give God thanksgiving. And so I invite brothers and sisters around you. Ask the, this is going to be a hard question, but ask it. Am I more known for my gratefulness or my grumbling? Do I talk about more about my cynicism or about my Christ? Will you help me see where Christ is more satisfying? Here's the truth. Thankless complaining is like carbon monoxide to the soul. As you breathe it in, it's hardly noticeable. 
But soon enough, it suffocates your love for Christ and limits your ability to help others live in joyful thanksgiving too. But you know what is oxygen? Prayer. Prayer is oxygen for your soul. Beloved, let's devote ourselves to prayer in all things. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Paul's not saying every moment of every day must be filled with conscious verbal prayer. The focus here is not first moving the lips, the motivation of the heart. The emphasis is on a posture which will lead to a frequent and fervent practice of planned prayer. Paul is saying live in such a way as if God is really present in every moment. Because he is. That's the posture of humble dependence on the Lord in all things, yielding our lives continually to him, saying, God, let your will be done. All of life's pain, problems, and prosperity tempt us to do the same thing. Forget God. In our pain, we forget God. In our problems, we forget God. In our prosperity, we can forget God. And Paul's saying, no. Go to God in prayer. To use the word of Jesus that he uses, abide. Always abide in Christ. Prayer is a posture and practice of abiding in Christ, knowing I can't do anything apart from him. Often we do treat prayer like medication. We don't feel so good. We go to the doctor. We get medication. We faithfully take it until we feel better. And then we put it on the shelf and don't worry about it anymore. So it can be with our posture and our prayer. It rises or falls on how we feel, not on who God is. And Paul is inviting us to something different, a continual posture of dependence on the Lord and a fervent and frequent practice of planned prayer. And so prayer acknowledges our weakness, that we need help, that we can't do it. Prayer confesses we really do need the Lord. Where prayer is little, it reinforces the assumption we're okay without God. But as I read this week, to be a Christian without praying is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Prayer is oxygen for our souls. Prayer is a privilege of the gospel. Do you see that? We can only, it's what we sang. We can only come to God in prayer because he first came to us in Christ. Christ Jesus died for us, for those repenting and trusting in Christ alone. And he rose again. And in heaven, you know what he's doing right now? Hebrews tells us he lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8 tells us he indeed right now is interceding for us. You know what the Spirit is doing right now? When we don't have words to pray, Romans 8 tells us, the Spirit prays words for us. Christ is interceding for us. The Spirit is interceding for us. I invite us to join Christ in the Spirit and go to God in prayer. Sometimes that's what I call an air prayer. Right? As we go throughout our day, we're asking God to help, giving him thanks, acknowledging his presence. You know, you drink a good cup of coffee, and you're like, God, God, 
God, thank you for that. That's so good. Thank you. Students, you're at class. Lord, help me in this math test. Give me clear recall in this Spanish quiz. You see a bird outside. Heavenly Father, remind me of Matthew 6. That as you take care of that bird, you'll take care of me. God Almighty, help me as I drive. Give me patience and a really good parking spot. Lord, grant me wisdom in this meeting I'm walking into. Lord, help me know how to respond to this email, what to say to this text message. Heavenly Father, as I walk to class, remind me that in Christ you walk with me. See, there's nothing too small, too mundane to take to God in prayer. Pray with your kids before they go to sleep. Pray when they wake up. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel with friends and strangers. Pray before meals, thanking God for his provision. And there's nothing too large for God to answer in prayer. Plead with him to save that family member and that friend. Ask him to miraculously cure the cancer. Pray for healing in your marriage. Ask him to provide a spouse to open the womb. Ask God to advance the gospel among the unreached. Confess your sins to God in prayer, believing the promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Plead with the Lord to grow our church's affection for Christ, that we might delight in him above all things. Pray through the church directory, each member name by name, asking God to bless them and keep them and make his face shine upon them. As you're fellowshipping after church, ask each other, how can I pray for you? And then do something amazing. Right then and there, pray for them. Pray. Attend our Sunday evening prayer gathering. God in his providence set up this sermon on this day so you can come back and apply it tonight at 5 p.m. This text is inviting us to have a posture and a frequent, fervent, planned practice of prayer. So I ask this not to guilt you. But how is your prayer life? Yes, it could always be better. I get that. That's always the answer. But genuinely, are you frequently communing with God in prayer throughout your day? And at planned times devoted to Him and with others. Invite brothers and sisters in this church to help you evaluate and learn. Prayer is more caught than it is taught. Surround yourself with others that will help you in this. And we remember we pray. And prayer is not a way to get more stuff from God. It's a way to commune deeper with God. Prayer is a way we depend on and delight in Jesus together. It's what it is. So if you want to think more about this, I would encourage you to go downstairs to our bookstall and there's a, there's a little, little book called Prayer by John Owen Chekwa. Great book. Pick up a copy. Pick up, in fact, go get two. Buy one, get one free. Sale today. Buy one, get one free. Right? And give it to a friend and say, let's read this together and let's pray together. It's a way you can think about prayer. Beloved, let's devote ourselves to praise and prayer in all things as we delight in Christ above all things. So is it possible to face the darkest days of life with hope and joy and purpose? Is it possible to enjoy the brightest days of life with happiness and contentment and yet still rightly yearn for a little bit more? Yes. Why? Because, beloved, our hands, our lives are in the hands of a fiercely tender God. Hands that took on flesh in Christ Jesus. 
Hands that touched the outcast, fed the hungry, healed the sick. Hands that were nailed to a cross, pierced for our transgressions. Hands that still have scars so they know our sorrows. And hands that will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. Because of this, we can rejoice always. We can pray without ceasing. And we can give thanks in all circumstances.